Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Before we get started, you should know this show has some explicit content, not for the faint of heart, so don't say you haven't been warned. It's a spring day in 1983. A car joins the crush of traffic on the 101, heading west. The passengers sit silent. They have a solemn job ahead of them. In the passenger seat, is Ann Ramis, clutching a small plastic bag. In the back seat is Ann's young daughter, Violet. Behind the wheel is screenwriter Rod Falconer. So on the way out to uh, Malibu, we went out, we were driving out to 101, and uh, Violet, who didn't know what was going on, of course, she knew Peter was dead, possibly, but she didn't really know we were carrying ashes or anything like that. The plastic bag contains some of Peter's ashes. Lucy Fisher has some, too, as does Peter's mother, Merle. The silence in the car is deafening. Violet Ramis is seven years old at this point. In that way that kids sometimes do, she senses the heaviness of the moment. She started singing just rather spontaneously and very, uh, with a beautiful tonality. And she sang... Streets of Laredo. As I walked out on the streets of Laredo. The Streets of Laredo was a song that I had learned at school, which is a very depressing song about a cowboy that dies. I spied a young cowboy wrapped all in white linen. The song feels right to Violet. She knows something bad has happened, even if she doesn't know exactly what it is. To her, The song is about Peter. He was our cowboy, you know, like we all loved our cowboy, so brave, young, and handsome. That was the lyric, and he was that. Like, he was everybody's hero. And I had never really listened to the words of Streets of Laredo. You know, I spy a young cowboy dressed in white linen, dressed in white linen and cold as the clay. Oh, beat the drum slowly and play the fife lowly. And play the death march 
as you carry me along. Take me to the valley and lay the sod o'er me. I'm a young cowboy and know I've done wrong. Anyway, it was it was perfectly chosen song. It's like it was this intuitive uh, insight. So we went up to the mountains somewhere. I don't exactly remember where with Peter's ashes. Um, and it was a very solemn group of people. Um, and somebody was saying some words. And then I, the bag fell into the river. That's Anne Ramus. The idea was to scatter the ashes into the river, but my mom just sort of tossed her baggie into the water. And, um, and I felt terrible, you know, because there was ghosts floating this plastic bag filled with his ashes down the river. And there was the Ziploc bag floating down the river. <laughs> um, and maybe that baggie is still somewhere. <laughs> and Rod said Peter would have loved it. I'm a young cowboy and no Looking back, Peter's death was one of the moments that signaled the end of an era in L.A. The culture was changing. There were monumental changes that took place. The overall punk scene um, moves from this very niche underground sound to a more kind of mainstream sound, especially through the subgenres that come up. Here's journalist Stephanie Mendez. Now you have thousands of people showing up and selling out these large venues to see big punk bands. So by the time Peter Ivers dies in 1983, the punk scene is dramatically different from the scene of 1977 because punk becomes uh, bigger in L.A. Um, there are bigger shows. There is a bigger scene. It's a familiar story. The underground gets cool, then goes supernova, and a new underground forms in its wake. A never-ending cycle. And it wasn't just happening in the punk scene. Film was changing, too, becoming more about blockbusters than art. The hip, edgy comedy of Saturday Night Live was going mainstream. The artsy culture of L.A. was becoming more and more about money. Cha-ching! I remember driving on the Sunset Strip, and I looked up at the whiskey marquee, and it said, The Knack. And I said, oh... God, we're screwed. That meant New Wave was getting a foothold and probably going to push punk right out the window. It was all a little less cool and a lot less interesting, to be honest. But it wasn't just the music that was changing. Peter's death cast an ominous shadow over the scene. For those of us who knew him, our who-gives-a-shit party days were over. My best friend was dead. I had no one to count on after that. It felt like a black cloud had settled down. The impact of Peter's death rippled through the scene in numerous ways. The final episode of New Wave Theater was left unfinished. Friends, lovers, and collaborators confronted a huge void in their lives. And worst of all, we carried with us the unsettling suspicion that the person responsible for his death might be someone we knew and trusted. I'm Penelope Spheris, and this is Peter and the Acid King. 
had a tendency to draw people into his orbit. Maybe that's why so many of his friends went to his loft the day he died. They were following Peter's gravitational pull. There were many who legitimately considered Peter their best friend and found, felt bound to him forever. John Leone was one of Peter's oldest friends. He's the guy who stumbled on Peter playing harmonica in the tunnels under Harvard. He's also a writer. So when L.A. Weekly asked John to write a tribute to Peter, he was honored. We asked John to read some of that tribute for us. The early symptoms of group shock have set in. The world is more intense, colors brighter, objects loom and pass. There were many golden hours, with me and dozens of others, passed contentedly in Peter's presence in Cambridge, in Berkeley, in New York, or Boston, in the 17 years I knew him. We sang at the piano, smoked dope, worked on songs, lyrics, music. We philosophized, exchanged show business court gossip, framed our problems as jokes, encouraged and laughed at each other. Peter said he hung out for a living. From these good hours came music for 14 plays at Harvard, a degree in classics, virtuosity on the harmonica, three albums, several hundred songs, soundtracks for a television show and two movies, an underground television celebrity and modern pop icon status. Pop icon might be a stretch, but we love Peter so much that we'll give it to him. In the moments after Peter's death, shock rolled through everyone in his circle one by one. And then the fact swoops by, chills pass down the spine, the body moves, the head rises, the tears swell. Friends touch blindly by telephone, go to bars, silent before the unspeakable. Peter's memorial was held the Sunday after he died at the Leo Beck Temple in West L.A. 300 people attended. The L.A. Times ran an obituary titled A Death of Innocence. It read, quote, Los Angeles lost one of the few links between its underground art community and the above-ground entertainment establishment. It also lost one of its most colorful characters, end quote. All kinds of people showed up to pay their respects. Here's Stuart Kornfeld, a film producer and a mutual friend of ours. I was an usher at the memorial service in L.A. And I'll just tell you, I'm like in back with the other ushers. And Mark Canton, who was like head of production at Warner Brothers, and Mark is like telling everybody, okay, you do this and you take that door and, and you walk into the, this place. And, and Harold Ramis says, uh, hey, who died and left you in charge? <laughs> Filmmaker Malcolm Leo must not have heard Ramus's joke because he thought the whole thing was too somber, not light and sweet like Peter was. It was almost uh, a bit too religious. And John Leone could have done without the Hollywood types, which I can definitely relate to. I went to only for a few minutes because what I really resented what happened for Peter's memorial. It was a bunch of people he didn't, who didn't know him very well. It was mostly Hollywood people. What brought these people together was their love for Peter, and each of them paid tribute in their own way. 
Franny Goldie, Peter's songwriting partner, played music at the service. We put together a band, like a band, and I played keyboards and everybody participated. They performed Riding on the Wings of Love, a song that she and Peter wrote together. I think it spoke to the moment, but it was Riding on the Wings of Love, Riding on the Wings, Riding on the Wings of Desire, Riding on the Wings of Love, Riding on the Wings of Fire. Um, sweet Mystery came unto me. Yeah, it, it was a really good lyric, and I think it spoke to the moment. Johanna Went attended the memorial as well. I mean, when I think about it now, I could almost cry, you know. I went with Shirley Clark, and Shirley didn't know Peter really well, but she had met him and talked to him about New Wave Theater because I'd been working with Shirley and Peter was interested in Shirley. Franny's band starts to play. And when they played that song, she just wept just could not stop weeping. She really wept out loud, you know, and people looked at her and she just said, you know, people, they don't know how to show their grief. (laughs) She said, what's wrong with these people? How can they just sit there? (laughs) That's what she said to me afterwards. She goes, how can they just sit there? Some people were there that day to grieve. Others were seeking solace. But those feelings were tangled up with something else, suspicion. Here's Stuart Kornfeld again. Everybody was looking for answers. And, and what was weird was everybody was pointing fingers in the, in the other direction. The movie people thought the punks did it. The punks right. thought, thought that the movie people did it. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. it was just fucking crazy. The way it turns out is you're sitting there going like, who killed my best friend? Yeah. And you're doing that like for years. That's Tequila Mockingbird, punk scenester extraordinaire. 30 years of me going, was it this person? Or could it have been that person? Or you never knew. You didn't know who your friends really were. Point is, the whole scene was on high alert. Fear was running rampant. Everyone was a suspect. It's very hard to describe how it put a cloud of negativity and paranoia and mistrust People started suddenly looking around over their shoulder a lot more. Um, And it it kind of brought the party to an end. I didn't want to see any of these people. I think one other person at that point who'd been actually murdered in the punk scene, and it was... um, Jane, who was uh, Rick Wilder's girlfriend that had been killed by the Hillside Strangler. That's Pleasant Gaiman. She knew Peter from the punk scene. I mean, people had died in car accidents or there was a few ODs, but I think the only other murder was that. But that was also by a known serial killer. So this was just kind of different, you know, because it was just like who... Who would murder him? He was so sort of innocuous. We had lost people close to us before. Belushi, Doug Kenny, Darby Crash. Drugs destroyed some of the best minds of my generation. But a murder was way different. It was violence on top of tragedy. 
Here's musician Russell Buddy Helm talking about it. He's playing the drums while he talks. I've gone through a lot of deaths, a lot of violent deaths in the music and film business. You know, when Dwayne died, that was rough. He's referring to Dwayne Allman from the Allman Brothers. He died in a motorcycle accident in 1971. And then when Tim Buckley was murdered, that was also very rough. When Peter died, just as bad, just as bad. Because it was like, what, the, what, what am I doing? You know, all these people that I've worked with intensely, creatively, you know, were violent deaths. So it was like, I couldn't figure out where I belonged, you know, because basically people were getting shot out from underneath me. Peter's death was like turning on the lights at the zero. Suddenly you saw everything you could ignore in the dark, including yourself. There was already a great deal of of nihilism and a sense of everything's ending, and this is like the last party feeling, like this is like the celebration of the end of the world was the mood of that whole scene. That's Nicholas Schreck. You heard him talk about the occult a few episodes ago. He knows about darkness. Like tomorrow there'll be some catastrophe or inferno coming and live it up now. That was the sense of it. And the murder just made that not fun anymore. It made it very real and made it like somebody here is a killer. Bob Forrest agrees. It just was like a light and all of a sudden not, and we'd already had a couple of people die of drugs, but to be murdered, it was like, holy fuck, that had to be somebody we know. Somebody we know murdered Peter Ivers. The one thing that I can attest to with complete assurity is what his murder did to the downtown art scene. And that was cause it to come to a screeching halt and realize that the innocence was over, that all of this fun that we were having and this I can live forever and bullets can go right through me and uh, we can do anything, that stopped. That was a very sobering event. That last voice is Stephen Seemeyer. He's an artist. I mean, none of us had been murdered. None of us had had foul play like that. We'd had our cars broken into, our studios broken into. We might have been, you know, harassed downtown by, you know, various people. But nothing on the level of murder had happened. So it, for a while there, it was like um, everyone felt like they suddenly grew up and it kind of changed everything. It was kind of like a milestone. That was it. For Alan Sachs, Peter's death was a turning point. Peter's death was the um, signal for me to leave this scene. By day, I was I was where I was producing TV movies. By night, I was, you know, sitting in David Jove's cave. He went to the cave a few more times but he found himself going there less and less. Eventually, he stopped altogether. I stopped drinking, I stopped using any sort of drugs. That was a big change. I didn't want to be part of it anymore, and yet there was, you know, drugs and alcohol was very prevalent in there. That kind of signaled me that I had to go somewhere else. For him, that somewhere else was AA. The reason that the Alcoholics Anonymous program works is because they say you got to go to a meeting a day the first year. And if you surround yourself with other recovered alcoholics, 
then it's safe. But if they're still drinking, it's not. Simple as that. There, there was a, a meeting in AA on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, and you would go there on a Friday night, and there were like 200 people sitting around, and several of, several of them part of the cave scene. A lot of people went in that direction. Bob Forrest went even further. He went from playing in bands like Thelonious Monster and enjoying the drugs and parties that entailed to becoming a world-renowned addiction counselor. And for that, I take my hat off to him. One person who did not attend Peter's service was David Jove. Instead, Jove hosted his own thing for Peter. Ken Yaz was there. David threw a memorial service for him in a room next to the whiskey on sunset. David was appropriately upset, but there was clearly something going on. There was something amiss about the whole thing. Funerals are for the living. They're supposed to give us closure. But after the memorial, after Peter's ashes went floating down the river, and after we all went back to our everyday lives, there was still no closure. One person who wasn't willing to stand for that was Lucy Fisher. Although she and Peter were separated, they were still deeply connected. And so she decided to take things into her own hands. Lucy and and Mark Canton and I all put up It sounds like a small amount now, but we put up $10,000 reward at that time. That's Rod Falconer again, Peter's screenwriting partner. By the way, $10,000 back then is $30,000 in today's money. uh, Lucy hired a private detective. Uh, The cops never really sort of, I don't know, they never really came up with anything. In the absence of any clear answers, people in the scene start speculating. And it's not long before theories begin to emerge. Peter owed 25000 to a Samoan drug gang based in Redwood City. Um, and that they were likely um, would have killed him for the, for the debt. Peter was messing around with many, many women in the Beverly Hills area. I got a phone call saying, you're next. And I said, come on over. I'm waiting for you. But that's for the next episode. See you then. Peter and the Acid King is based on interviews recorded and researched by Alan Sachs, It's produced by Imagine Audio, Alan Sachs Productions, and Awfully Nice for iHeartMedia. I'm your host, Penelope Spheris. The series is written by Caitlin Fontana. Peter and the Acid King is produced by Amber Von Schassen. The senior producer is Caitlin Fontana, and the supervising producer is John Asante. Our project manager is Katie Hodges. Our executive producers are Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Cara Welker, 
Nathan Clokey, Alan Sachs, Jesse Burton, and Katie Hodges. The associate producers are Laura Schwartz, Dylan Kainrich, and Chris Statue. Co-producer on behalf of Shout Studios, Bob Emmer. Sound design and mix by Evan Arnett. Fact-checking by Katherine Barner. Original music composed by Alloy Tracks. Music clearances by Barbara Hall. Voiceover recording by Voice Tracks West. Show artwork by Michael Dare. Special thanks to Annette Van Duren. Thank you for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. What if we told you about a major breakthrough on awesome savings on all-inclusive beach vacays? OMG, this could break the case. Case? I'm talking about CheapCaribbean.com. It's full of hot savings. At CheapCaribbean.com, score an extra $175 off site-wide on vacations of four nights or more now through June 3rd. Swim up bar in Punta Cana or dip your toes in the sand on the shores of Cancun. We gotta take this show on the road. Start at CheapCaribbean.com.